Uh, the little girls are funny. I mean, my little girl, she's just starting to speak a lot, and we're having trouble actually getting her not to speak now, so we're into that phase, and we'll see how that goes. But not that long ago, I was over at a Toys R Us, and as I was rummaging around, there was a father and his daughter, and they were clearly arguing about a toy. And clearly the father was saying no. And the girl got really upset, she stomped her foot, and she screamed, I just want to be happy, Daddy! And she stormed off. And the poor dad, I mean, he looks over at me and some of the other people that are around, he just kind of shrugs, and he puts the toy back on the shelf and marches off to the long argument that he's going to have with his daughter all the way home. But think about what she screamed, I just want to be happy, Daddy! I mean, that's a pretty telling statement, isn't it? That's kind of a, a sign of our times. It kind of sums up the way we think. Not that long ago, I was watching an episode of Canada's Worst Driver. This is a show that I'll watch if I'm up really late at night and can't get to sleep. Um, I think it's funny because these people are very terrible at driving, and they put them in situations that real drivers would have a really hard time doing as well. And there's this one girl that she was just in, this, in the car, and she's trying to drive, you know, and she's clearly kind of a princessy type. And she's sitting there, and every time she makes a mistake, she gets a little bit more and more mad until she gets so agitated that she just screams, this isn't making me happy, and she quits. <laughs> this isn't making me happy. You know, I can't tell you how many times in the last few years, in conversations and in counseling sessions and all that stuff, this word happiness comes up to the forefront. How we define our reality by how happy we are. And you know, happiness has become the measure for whether or not the world is right. Hasn't it? Is, do you find this is true? And you know, it seems to have built all the way up to this point. Years ago, nobody talked about being happy in life. You know, save for like the American dream, right? The pursuit of happiness. But it didn't dominate our conversations. It didn't dominate our feelings. Now don't get me wrong. This is not a sermon about not being happy, okay? <laughs> I like happiness, I like being happy, and I'm sure you enjoy being happy as well. So let's just put that out there right now. I'm not against happiness. But what happens when happiness becomes our hope? You see, in 1 Peter, Peter the Apostle, he tells us something about hope. Look at this, chapter 3, verse 15, 1 Peter. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard this verse in some form or another. And this is a wonderful verse telling us about how to share our faith, how to approach people with the hope that we have. It talks about gentleness and respect. It talks about doing it in reverence to Christ not doing it out of an argumentative tone, which is wonderful and a great message. But I'm curious, if I came to you right now, and I asked you to articulate the hope that you have, what would you say? What would you say? What exactly are we hoping for? There's a movie some years ago, and in it, one of the characters was dying of cancer, and, and she, to defend her, her position in life, said, I just think God wants me to be happy. And that's what she said. And while that in itself is not wrong, what, what does that really mean? What is it that she was hoping for? 
Every once in a while, movies come up that articulate these questions really, really well. I'm going to show you a trailer for a movie. Now, I'm not suggesting that this afternoon you go out and rent this and watch it. I'm not suggesting that the theology in this movie is correct or incorrect, for that matter. I just want to show you a question that people have. Did you run the tape?
The Apostle John, we're not ready for that yet. <laughs> uh, the Apostle John, he, he had spent a very long life. And he was there on an island and he was dying. And he was trying to get down the last things that God was telling him. Now John was frantically writing stuff down and he had seen some visions. He had seen clearly some, some messages from God. Christ had told him, go and write these things down. And so he started writing in a type of literature that we don't actually have anymore. He was trying to put down images and reference things that people would understand in a way they would get it back then. You know, if I was trying to relate to you something about space, I would probably use science fiction language. Alright? I would probably say we have to go by warp speed to get there, or something like that. Alright? In a few hundred years when they don't have science fiction anymore, because everything is real, I guess, science fiction language won't make any sense to people. The same thing happens here, okay? They had this apocalyptic literature. And it's not unique to the book of Revelation. It's actually all over Scripture. And in fact, there's other books that are written outside of the Bible that are apocalyptic in nature. It's a total genre. And so John uses images. He uses ideas. He borrows from all of these different writers just to put the images down on a piece of paper so that we can understand the glimpse that he was given. And so John, in chapter 21, he starts describing this heaven, what it's going to be like. And he tells us that earth and heaven will be, will be wiped out, will be destroyed, and a new heaven and a new earth will be created. And in this new heaven and a new earth, there will be a new Jerusalem that is brought down by God to rest on the earth. And God will dwell there. He will be there, right in the center of, of all of it. He won't use a temple. He won't set up some sort of practice of, uh, of priests to worship and then set up a practice where we have to have a filter, that we have to have Jesus to come and, and, and change everything so that we can be close to God. That will all be done with. And God will be at the center. He describes this city as absolutely enormous and absolutely beautiful. And the things that we consider beautiful and precious here, precious stones, precious metals, are like asphalt and drywall to him. They don't matter. And it says that God will surround himself with his people, and that there is, there is nothing that will keep his people away from him any longer. And in fact, God even says that I swear it will be done. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I know all that is, ever, and was. And if I say so, it is so. In fact, he says it in such a tone that it sounds like it's already happened. This is how serious God takes it. And then in verse 4 of that chapter, he says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then he goes on to say to the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And then... Later on in chapter 22, he says, Then the angel, this is John speaking now, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every single month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. 
The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's quite the picture. Now, when I read that, what words stood out to you? What words just were blaring in your mind as they came out? Most often people zero in on a few things. They see that they see that God will be there. That's pretty important. Uh, they see that there will be no more pain. That they will see His face. That there will be no more need for lights. Those types of things pop out. And that's a beautiful picture. And actually later on in verse 21, He says, Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This picture is refreshing and beautiful and wonderful. But I still see a gaping problem. You see, we, we tend to take a step beyond this, don't we? Think about any conversation about heaven you've ever had, ever. What happens in that conversation? What do people start talking about? You know, I've, I've talked about heaven with a lot of different people. And I've talked with some very, very well-educated, very, very well-read, very, very strong Christian people. And I've heard a couple of answers that maybe have been said flippantly, but maybe had a little bit more seriousness to them. I had one guy who said, you know what heaven's going to be? Heaven is going to be me going fishing every single day. And the fish are always biting. Okay. One guy said to me, you know what heaven's going to be like? Heaven is going to be a birthday party for you every single day. That's what it's going to be. Heaven's going to be a birthday party for you. Another guy, he said, heaven is going to be a chance for me to go and eat cheesecake with Moses. And I won't have diabetes. Okay, actually, that was me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't help it. <laughs> My point is, some of these things may actually have a biblical base. Some of these ideas that are a little bit more serious that we talk about with heaven are actually started or rooted in Scripture, but we take them a little bit too far sometimes. We go a little bit beyond what Scripture says. And in each of those descriptions of heaven that I just said, who is the central person? When we took a look at that scripture about heaven, did the words that stood out to you were the words were they words that directed directly applied to you? Did anybody catch the verse when it where it said, "And his servants will serve him"? Interesting. Heaven, heaven is going to be all about God, and the gaping question that remains unanswered when we talk about heaven is what does God get out of the deal? I mean, think about it. Everything we've ever talked about always is all about us, but what about God? What does God get? Remember, God is a God of covenants. We've just spent the last few months discussing God's covenant with His people, the Israelites, in which He provided for them if they worshipped Him. A covenant is where two parties both do something for the benefit of the other individual. God is a God of covenants, and that covenant is extended and changed in heaven. There is a covenant relationship there. And if it's going to be all about God, God is going to have to have a perfect relationship with us. 
It means that in heaven, things are going to change. Our relationship to God is going to change. His glory, His, His personhood will pulsate from the throne of God. And we will not be able to help but be surrounded by Him, and in Him, and for Him. And it actually, in, in Revelation chapter 4, John just opens up the description of what's going on in heaven right now. And he says that there are these angels, and there are the heavenly beings, and then he goes on to talk about the others that get to come and gather around Him. And you know what they're all doing? They're all worshiping Him. And they're shouting, and they're singing, and they're praying, and they're saying stuff like, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the description of heaven that we're given. You know, when I was little, we had this organist in our church that she was a little bit tone deaf. I mean, she was a wonderful woman, but she was a little tone deaf. And she would always demand that you sang louder because, again, she, her hearing wasn't that great. And she said, you better practice for heaven because this is what it's going to be like. And I thought... <laughs> You know, we understand worship by our worship experience, and my experience to that point had not been that good. <laughs> Perhaps I had an incorrect view of what worship was. In essence, our worship, our worship is our expression of our relationship to God. That's what it's supposed to be. And in heaven, that relationship Right now, we need Jesus to intercede. We need Him to run interference for us. Because our worship is blocked. We're sinful people. We cannot stand before God and just say hello. Because we're sinful. We need Jesus to come and to deal with our sin so that our communication with God can be true and be pure. In heaven, there will be no need for that. Our worship will become true and and in heaven, everything will have to do with God. And because of that, because of His presence, because of His action, because of His initiation of the worship, every tear will be dry. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. In essence, God will free us from our sorrows. And that's our inheritance as believers. But I asked another question at the very beginning of this sermon. I said, what is our hope? What is our hope? Is our inheritance our hope? You know, when my parents die, many, many years from now, hopefully, when they die, they're probably going to leave me a small inheritance. Am I to live my life hoping somehow that I will receive some great blessing when I die? Is that the point of that inheritance? No. No, it's not. Is my hope built on some sort of karmic idea of reward in the end? Is my hope squarely on heaven, that distant someday? It's certain, but am I hoping in it? You know, I don't think that salvation is meant to be our ticket to heaven. I don't think that our focus is supposed to be on solely the end goal. I don't think that salvation is as much about heaven as much as it is about today. Heaven is a portion of that hope. But we have something bigger to hope in. We have something more important to hope in right now. 
Let's take a look at 1 Peter once again, and I'm going to show you the rest of the chapter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against you and your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who had been disobedient long ago, when God waited, waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes the baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with the angels and the authorities and the powers, all in submission to Him. According to Peter, what is the hope that we have? The hope is the resurrection of Christ. Remember, Peter is talking to a group of people that are suffering dearly for being Christians. He's writing to this group saying, you know what? You are being beaten, you are being tortured, you are lonely, you are afraid. It's a scary world, I understand that. But instead of fear, focus on the hope that you have in Christ. That what's happening to you right now is not the sum total of your life. That what they're doing to you now can have no effect on the relationship that you have with God. That is the hope that we have in Christ. And when he says, be prepared to give an answer to anybody that asks, he's not saying, go and tell them how happy you are that you're being beaten and abused for your faith. That's not the point. He says, go to them and say, you can't touch me, and this is why. That what happens in the body is not what happens to our lives. That we are done with sin because Christ has taken care of that through the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, all the suffering is nonsense. Without the resurrection, being here this morning makes no sense at all. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. In fact, without the resurrection, we don't even have heaven. It's all taken away. Our hope is planted firmly in the resurrection of Christ. And when we respond to our faith, and when we tell people about the hope that we have, it's about telling them, I live this way because I have a Savior who's died for me. I live this way because I know my sin is dealt with. I live this way because I am free, knowing that God has me. That I am with God, and nothing in this world can separate me from that love which is in Christ Jesus. The happiness that we experience is a byproduct of that. Happiness is not the goal. Heaven is not the goal. 
resurrection is the good one. Would you please pray with me? Lord, what a great mystery you are. God, you promised us so much. You promised us of this life that is that is full. You've promised us a life of adventure, and, and God, that can take us into some scary places. But Lord, I pray that we will understand the hope that we have in you. I pray that we will be able to grasp what it is that has actually happened for us. That we are free from sin because of you. Lord, help us to share that with other people. Help us to grasp that hope and give it to others. So that they too can experience the hope of the resurrection. We love you very much, God. In Jesus' name.